good to see you this morning. It's a beautiful day outside, right? Blue sky, sun is uh, shining, it's a good day to be alive. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Chris, and uh, of course I'm one of your pastors here at New Life. Uh, before we get going here, just a, a quick uh, word of warning, I guess I would say, uh, to any parents of young children. If you got a, a little kid in here, uh, normally that's, that's fine. Uh, but the message this morning does contain uh, some sexual content, uh, nothing too graphic, but if you're not ready to have that conversation yet with your kids, uh, to avoid any awkward uh, questions in the car on the way home, uh, this is your chance to exit. And uh, we do have a great preschool ministry uh, right out to my right, your left. And we also have for elementary age, uh, Kids Church upstairs, and that's awesome. Kids will love that. And so uh, this is your warning don't send me any angry emails this week, all right? All right, a couple other reminders. Uh, next Sunday, uh, seven days from today, we're having a baptism Sunday. So we're gonna have uh, our baptism pool set up here. Got a couple people already signed up. A couple more have emailed and, and just kind of inquiring about it. And so um, if that's something that you've been thinking about, perhaps you feel like maybe the Holy Spirit has been prompting you for some time, or even you, maybe you just have questions like, hey, I, I was baptized as a baby. What does that mean? Or I was baptized when I was five or six. I don't even really remember it. Do I need to be baptized again? Uh, we would love to have that dialogue with you. And so if that's you and you would like to consider being baptized next week or even some other time, uh, just drop us an email. So the easiest way is just drop us an email at info at nlcca.org, okay? That stands for New Life Community Church Asheville, info at nlcca.org, and um, we'll contact you this week and we can uh, chat about it. Also, uh, we are now, hard to believe, less than a month away from um, Easter Sunday, which is known as like the Super Bowl of Sundays for churches, uh, because uh, people that you never see all year long, they'll show up again um, on, on, on Easter Sunday. And so, again, this is just one of those times, it's a cultural thing, and we want to take advantage of our, our culture, uh, people who don't believe, people who are unchurched, they're de-churched, they're mad at the church, whatever, um, oftentimes, if somebody they know, uh, somebody that they have a relationship with, will invite them to an Easter service, again, all the studies show that they're far more likely to come with you on Easter Sunday than any other Sunday um, throughout the year. So we just, we want to take advantage of that. We want to expose as many people as possible uh, to the good news of uh, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection on their behalf. And so I would encourage you, we'll try to make it easy on you this year. We printed, printed up these nice little uh, nifty Easter invite cards. Uh, they, they look good. They'll be right at the front doors where you exit to go out to your, your cars. There's a big old basket of these. And so the way you can help us out is just by taking maybe three, four, uh, five of these with you on the way out and just hand them out to your barista, you know, at Starbucks or whatever coffee shop you go to or uh, maybe a restaurant that you frequent, neighbors, friends, classmates, coworkers, family members, uh, just ask them to come and be your guest um, at New Life on Easter Sunday, and that would be a help to us if you guys would spread the word. Um, also, this coming Wednesday, so just a few days from now, 6.30 p.m., our second ever worship night. If you were here for the first one, you know it was a lot of fun. And so this is a family-friendly event. Bring your kids uh, they can run around. They're not going to uh, bother anybody because it's going to be uh, plenty loud anyway. Uh, and so we're going to have a great time uh, just worshiping God. So would encourage you to come back out. We don't often do things midweek here, 
Uh, but we are this time, so come back out Wednesday night, 6.30 p.m. We're going to have a worship night, and I think that you'll really enjoy it. All right, so we're going to be continuing in our David series uh, this morning. We are now in week 10 of this magnificent uh, story. We have three more weeks left after today. And uh, thus far, all we've seen in David's life, pretty much, uh, is victory after victory, right? David's this man after God's own heart. Uh, we see him really trusting God. We see him uh, really pressing into God in really tough seasons of his life. It's all going uh, so well, like remarkably well for David until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up or turn it on and head to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we're going to uh, camp out uh, this morning. Now, even if you've never been uh, in a church in your life, or maybe it's been years since you've been, somebody drug you here, you came as a favor, whatever it is, even if that's you, you're still probably familiar with at least two stories in David's life, okay? So the first one is uh, David and Goliath. Everybody in the world has, has heard that story. But the second one you're probably familiar with, maybe less so, but still familiar with, is the story of David and Bathsheba, right? It's one of the most uh, tragic stories in the entire Bible, and so while we have learned from David's strengths, while we have learned from his faith, his unwavering trust in God, his just kind of like a ferocious love for God, his unmatched success as he's walked faithfully with God for the last uh, 10 weeks, today my hope is that we will have the chance to learn from David's failure. You know, even, even the strongest of hearts for God are still capable of failure. Did you know that? So like whatever person you hold up in your mind, like you idolize as a champion of the faith, like whether that's Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or your pastor when you grew up or whatever it is, everybody is capable, no matter how strong their heart is for God, of failure. And so even mighty King David walked into sin that absolutely shattered his life and altered his life's course forever. So if you're here and you think, man, I have really messed up my life, um, you're in good company. Um, you have nothing on David, as we're about to see. And uh, here, here's kind of the, the strange thing in our, our culture, at least for me as a pastor, is I think talking about sin in general is, is tough in our culture, but I think specifically talking about sexual sin is really tough in our culture. Because I think, I think we're, we're living um, maybe in the most sexually charged, just kind of lust-driven, um, just kind of deeply saturated, embedded uh, sensuality in our culture, uh, like may maybe in history. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV or go to a movie, listen to any uh, popular music nowadays. Even like when our kids are, are in the room with us watching a TV show, we've gotten to the point where we have to pause the commercials, right? Because they're, they're so just messed up and sexually charged. And so um, everything, everything has been uh, just sexualized in our culture. It's to the point where, where honestly, I think a strong argument could be made that as a culture, as the American culture, we have actually substituted sex for God. And so we, we well, here's what we've done, I think. We, we've taken a good gift, right? And by, by the way, sex is a, is a good gift, and, and it's actually God's idea. Like, so people get weirded out. You talk about sex in, in church and stuff like that. But you, you guys realize it's God's idea, right? Like, we didn't figure it out, and he's like, oh, 
I didn't, I didn't know that they were going to do that. Like, it's his, it's his idea, okay? It's his good gift to humanity. But, but here's the problem. Like, we, we've made the, the good gift the object of worship, right? In, instead of worshiping the giver of the good gift, we've begun to worship the gift itself. Now, that's nothing new, as we're about to see 3,000 years ago, but the end result is just as devastating in our lives today in 2019 as it was for David 3,000 years ago. So I want us to look at David's fall this morning. I want us to notice uh, some warning signs that were present in his life, and I really want us to, to just try to dial in on the DNA of what it looks like to wreck your life in sin and, and hopefully discover how we can avoid making the same mistakes that, that David made. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning uh, in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So here, here we get our first warning sign that something is, is wrong. It says, in the springtime, when kings go to battle, so uh, winter would pass, winter would subside, and Kings would go out to either defend their territory or to expand their territory. And that's just like what kings did, except that's not what David did this time. David sends Joab, his military commander, and David stays home in his palace in Jerusalem. That's a problem. Why? Because David's the king, right? Now, this, this doesn't sound like the David that we've come to know over the course of the last 10 weeks, does it? Like, David had never done this. David had always been the leader on the forefront, leading his people, trusting God, exhibiting just like a ferocious bravery, but something has changed now. This is not the same David that we've come to know. And I think what's happening here is David is getting drunk on his own success. David is this warrior king, right? He's now comfortable in his luxurious uh, palace up on the, the hillside of Jerusalem, David's getting a bit lazy. He's now happy to have other people fight his battles for him. And things are going really well for David, so well that he's allowing his heart to drift into some dangerous waters. So there's a, there's a truth here. There's a warning sign that we get right off the bat that I, I think we just should miss, and it's this. Number one, write this down. Complacency gives birth to sin. Spiritual complacency is poison to the human soul. When we put our spiritual lives in neutral, guess what happens every time? We drift. And here's the scary thing. None of us drift towards holiness. When we put our life, when we shift down into neutral, like I, I wish that I just drifted towards God, drifted towards righteousness, drifted towards holiness, but that's not true in my life, and I know that it's not true in your life. When you put your spiritual life in neutral, you drift towards sin. Amen. That's why there is no neutral spiritually when it comes to your walk with God. You're either growing in Jesus or you're drifting towards disaster. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. And so if you find yourself in a complacent place in your life today, spiritually speaking, just like you're living on autopilot, just kind of drifting through life. Listen, that is your first warning sign that danger awaits you right around the corner of your life. Verse two, 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his what? From his couch. And he was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Okay, so here, here we have King David. He should be leading his man in war. Where is he? It says late, late one afternoon, he arose from his couch. Right, so his guys are out there on the battlefield. David gets up from his second nap of the day. Oh, stretch out, a big yawn, right? The warrior king, the guy who, if you remember early in the story, women used to write songs about David because of his prowess on the battlefield. The warrior king is now a couch potato, right? He's just, he's just kind of bored. He already, you know, finished rewatching The Office on Netflix and he already played Fortnite for seven hours that day and he's just like, he's waking up. He's like, man, I got, I got nothing to do today. I don't know what, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I'll just like walk around on my roof, see what's happening, you know, in the city. And uh, so he's complacent. He's, repl- he's just complacent. So you guys probably remember, maybe you heard this old adage from your, your grandmother, especially if you grew up in the deep south like I did. Um, the, the old adage kind of, uh, an idle mind is the devil's what? Workshop. Workshop, our playground, right? That is so true. So here David is, man. He's just being complacent. He's neglecting his responsibilities as king. He's on his roof, and he looks out over the city, and he's like, whoa. He sees Bathsheba bathing, right? And the Bible says she was very beautiful. Now, the writer could have just said she was beautiful. The fact that he actually goes out of his way to write that she was very beautiful is an indication to us that this woman was not just attractive, she was stunning, okay? So this is biblical language for girl was a smoke show, right? I mean, just, she was, she was smoking. So like if you're one, like just to help you picture like where she was on the attractiveness scale, like you could probably just like picture or imagine her as like a female version of me. Like that might help you like, you, <laughs> but you probably shouldn't picture me bathing on top of a roof, like. Some of y'all just did, didn't you? I warned you. I, t- I, I told you not to. One day you guys are going to learn to listen to me, right? So Bathsheba's there. She's bathing. She's smoking. And David now has a choice, right? David is a married man. Is David going to do what's right? Is he going to avert his eyes and go back into the palace and play Fortnite? Or, or even better yet, like go to the battlefield where he should be with his men? What does David do in this moment? Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now this is David's point of escape. One of his brave servants conjured up enough courage and actually challenges the king. And he says, listen, David, this is not just a cheap thrill, man. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. Not only that, This is Eliam's daughter. This is Uriah's wife. Now, this is significant, we find out later on in the book, because we learn that both Eliam and Uriah are among what's called David's mighty men, which means that both Bathsheba's husband and her father were both essentially in David's special forces. They're, They're his best, his baddest, his most loyal soldiers, and this is David's chance to take an exit ramp, to avoid sin. This, this servant is giving him a chance to exit stage 
left, right? Listen what Paul has to say. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. This will be on the screens for you. But Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is the temptation, which, by the way, this is great news because this means anytime we are tempted as believers, God always gives us an escape route, and this is David's escape route. So does David, does David take it? Now, I want you to notice this. David hasn't sinned yet, okay? Like he hasn't had an affair, nothing's going on. He hasn't actually stepped into sin yet. But, but I want you to notice what's happening here. David, in his complacency, has now opened himself up to compromise, okay? So first, first he's complacent, and then he opens himself up to begin taking steps of compromise, and that's the second warning sign in David's life and in our own life. So I want you to pay attention. Truth number two, it's this. Compromise is the slippery slope to destruction. And say, so here's the frightening thing. I'm certain that David, at this point in the narrative, he's just thinking, man, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm, I'm not, this is not going to go anywhere. I just, I don't want to get some more information about her. Like, what's the big deal? I'm not having an affair. He just takes a step, just one small step. There's nothing wrong with me finding out about her, who she is. There's nothing wrong with me like checking out her Facebook profile and just kind of scrolling through all her pictures. Right? But I, but I, want you to, I want you to hear this, friend. Small steps towards sin, it never ends well. It never ends well. Compromise is the slippery slope to destruction and pain in your life. And those, there are some here right now in a room this size, I just, I would guarantee you, who are on this pathway right now this morning. You are on it, man. You are on the slippery slope of compromise. And you're here, and maybe you're married, and I don't know what's going on. Maybe you're, you're flirting with a coworker. Oh, it's innocent enough, or you're exchanging uh, Facebook private messages with an ex, or maybe you're here and you're a teenager and you're just like you're right on the edge of jumping into a sexual relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend who's not your husband, not your wife yet. And lis listen to me, you, you are here, I believe you're here right now because God loves you enough to warn you to turn back, to, to turn to him before you train wreck your marriage. Before you destroy your family, before you inject your life with the poison and the pain of sin, before you blow up your life as a teenager, avoid the destruction, friend. Turn back. This is your moment of escape, as the Apostle Paul talked about. Hear God's voice this morning. Don't ignore him. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, that is Bathsheba. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sends for her. He doesn't avert his eyes. 
He begins to compromise. He wasn't satisfied with just finding out who she was. He actually sins for her. She comes and they have sex. And so now Bathsheba is pregnant. And it's like, uh uh-oh. This has gotten serious now. Things have changed now. Now there's a a note there about Bathsheba uh, purifying herself from her uncleanness. And that note is there so that we would know that she had just finished her monthly cycle. And your thought might be what my thought was, like, why is that detail in there? Like, that's kind of a weird thing to throw in there. But it's there because, listen, the writer of this scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to know there's no chance this is Uriah's baby. This is 100% David's baby. He's busted now. Now, this is David's chance to come clean. This is David's chance to plead for forgiveness, to do what he can to make things right. And let me just pause in the narrative right here to to say, man, I, I would also wager that there are some of you here in this room right now who are in this spot Right? You've, you've already moved beyond complacency. You've allowed sin to already blossom. It's, it's full-blown in your life. You're in the middle of the fire right now. You're scrambling just like David was. And I want you to, just to know that you have a choice just like David did. You can try to cover it up. You can try to dive into the waters of, of lies and deceit. But I'm, just, I'm, I'm telling you, if you do that, you will, you will crash and burn. It is not a matter of if, it is only a matter of when you get exposed. And I'm just telling you, if I, listen, if I'm talking to you right now, let me just encourage you as a friend, as a brother, confess, confess, repent. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. God is telling you right now, own it. Don't play the cover-up game. Avoid further destruction. Stop the madness now. Do you know what's more exhausting than living a double life? Nothing, really. You have to craft lies to cover up lies. You have to remember what lies you told when and to who so you don't get exposed. That is a miserable life. That is not the life that God has for you. That's not life at all. That's hell. And if you don't confess, and if you don't deal with it, I'm just telling you, your sin will haunt you for the rest of your life. Listen, if you're here and you had an affair 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you think you got away with it, guess what? I promise you, you feel it every time your wife touches your hand. You feel it every time your husband kisses you on the cheek. Your heart is filled with guilt and shame and regret. And it will never leave you until you confess and let God heal you. Never. Unconfessed sin will absolutely just cripple you in life. Listen, everybody sins. There's nobody perfect in this room. We have all sinned. It's what you do afterwards that will define your life. You cover it up. Try to bury it in a mountain of lies and deceit or will you run to God and find his grace and his forgiveness there? Verse six. So David sent word to Joab, David's military commander, and he said, send me Uriah, the Hittite. And so Joab sent Uriah to David. And when when Uriah came to him, 
David asked Joab, um, asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So this is just kind of, this has got to be kind of a weird conversation, right, for David and for Uriah. It's just, it's awkward. David pulls Uriah off the battlefield for no, no apparent reason, and he walks into the king's chambers, right, and David's like, hey, buddy, hey, man, how you doing? Uriah's like, uh, fine, king. How's everybody else out there? How, tell me about the salt. We're, everybody's, everybody's good. Well, tell me, tell me, like, tell me how the war is going, pal. Like, how's it going? Well, king, I, like, I, I wouldn't know. It was going well until you pulled me off the battlefield, but I don't know how it's going now. So Uriah must have known that something weird was going on. Like something, something was off. He could, he could smell it. Verse eight. Then David said to Uriah. Go down to your house and wash your feet. This is Old Testament-like code language for go home and see your wife, wink, wink. Have, have some fun, right? You've been in battle, go have some fun. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So now David is sending him presents. He's really laying it on thick. Really what's happening is, is David is, is desperate. He's going into a panic here. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why, why, why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. See, Uriah is living by an honor code. Many warriors in that day would enter into a season of celibacy leading up to battle so that they could focus their heart's attention on God, so that they could focus all of their passion and attention on defeating their enemies. As I understand it, that's not, that's not uncommon today for some uh, boxers and UFC fighters to do the same thing leading up to a big fight. So Uriah, Uriah's like, listen, David, I'm... I'm living by an honor code. My men are sleeping out in that field. My men are spilling their blood for our kingdom. I'm not sleeping with my wife until the battle is won. So I want you to just notice the integrity of Uriah here. His integrity is shining brightly as David's integrity, on the other hand, is crumbling and falling through his fingers like sand. Cover-up number one fails, so David moves up to cover-up plan number two. This time, we don't have time to read it. You can read it later. This time, he invites Uriah to a feast, and he gets Uriah drunk. So he knows Uriah likes a good Italian red, and so he just tells his servants, hey, man, like, whenever Uriah's not looking, just pour a little bit more in his cup, right? And so Uriah's like, hey, man, I thought I already drank some of this. I guess not. And so he just keeps drinking it, and all of a sudden, he's, he's drunk. And David is thinking, man, if I could just get Uriah hammered enough, he's going to stumble home, he's going to sleep with Bathsheba, then everybody's going to think the kid is his, and I'm going to be off the hook. All right, sinister plan, strike two, Uriah doesn't bite. Even in a drunken stupor, Uriah stumbles over, and he sleeps beside the servants again. Now, don't miss this here. Even a drunk Uriah has more integrity at this point than a sober David. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. 
Friend, sin will rob you of your integrity. And if you don't think it can happen to you, if you're like, oh, that, that's the kind of sin for like those evil people out there that don't go to church. That's for like people that aren't Christian. If you don't think it can happen to you, I, let me just say, with all the love I can muster in my heart, you're a fool. You are foolish. You're a foolish person if you don't think it can happen to you. I remember when I was uh, in seminary, you know, you, you rarely remember sermons like forever, your, your whole life. And uh, so most of you, you probably remember like one or two really impactful sermons in your entire life. But I can remember in, in seminary, you know, 20, whatever, three, four years old, and I can remember our, our seminary president, Danny Aiken, and um, he, was, he was preaching to a room full of, you know, hundreds of young men and women who were preparing to go to the mission field, to be missionaries, to go into uh, pastorate positions and all kinds of different ministry positions. And he was actually speaking on this. And I can remember him looking at us and just saying, listen, listen, David, God said of David that David's heart was after his own heart. And then he asked us a question. He said, do you think you love God more than David? And he said, I don't think I love God more than David. If you don't think it can happen to you, you are foolish. You're foolish. It can happen to any one of us. And David now is in big trouble. And David was the last person that anybody would have ever thought would fall into this kind of sin. So now what? It's panic time. That's exactly what time it is. It's panic time. David moves to cover up plan number three. I want you to see here that, that sin in your life, sin just gives birth to more sin. Have you noticed that? Sin is never actually satisfied, right? It's, its hunger is insatiable. So David is in full-on cover-up mode. He's in full-on panic mode now. So plan number three is he writes up an order to send to Joab, the military commander. And the order says, hey, I want you to take Uriah, one of my best special forces guys, I want you to put him on the, the front line of battle. And when the battle heats up, I want you to withdraw everybody so he's alone to die by himself. So David essentially, when he gets painted into a corner, says, I'll just kill the guy. If I can't figure out how to cover up my own sin, my own sin and shame, I'm just going to wipe the guy out. I'm just going to kill him. So my question as I was kind of read, like reading this text, might be the same question you have is you get to this point, you're like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Like, I, I don't even know you anymore, David. And he hands the order to Uriah to carry back. Get this, Uriah is carrying his own death warrant to the battlefield. How messed up is that? And the story tells us that Joab, sadly, he follows David's sinister command. And he sends Uriah to the front of the line and he sends them to the enemy's gate so that he would be easy prey for the archers. And Uriah, along with several other of David's servants, die there. And here's what I want you to see. What, listen, what started as a simple glance, what started as a simple glance on a rooftop, innocent enough, has now evolved into an affair which has now led to multiple murders. I'm just reminded of the words of James, Jesus' uh, half-brother, when he wrote this. This will be on the screens for you, too. But James wrote, 
But when each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here's the third truth. This is a bit longer, so you might want to write this down. Listen, number three, if you don't kill the, sin, the seed of sin in your heart, it will blossom into the fruit of death in your life. Let me say that again. If you don't kill the seed of sin in your heart, it will blossom into the fruit of death in your life. If you allow sin to go unchecked in your life, it will grow. And eventually, it will envelop your entire life. It'll kill you. It will eat you from the inside out. And here's what's scary. It almost always starts small. It almost always seems innocent enough. I mean, this is not a big deal. This is not hurting anybody. Nobody's even going to know about this. I deserve this. That's a good one, right? Had a stressful day. It's been a tough year. I deserve this. Not a big deal. But you crack that door open, and listen, we have an enemy that will kick it down. Be careful, friend. Let's pick it up in verse 23. The messenger said to David, so they send word back to David of what, what has happened in the battle. The man gained an advantage over us, and they came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So David gets the news that not only is Uriah now dead, but others have also died in his sick cover-up. Now what's David's response to this news? Does David finally fall on his knees and repent and cry out to God and beg for his forgiveness? No. He says, send word back to my military commander and tell him, don't let this bother you. People die in wars all the time, and that's just the way the cookie crumbles. It's no big deal. See, David has hardened his heart, and he's now minimizing and justifying his own sin, and that is such a dangerous place for any of us to be in. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So Bathsheba weeps for her husband, Uriah. As soon as she's done wiping away her tears, David brings her to the palace and makes her his wife. And David had to be thinking at this point, man, I am so clever. I am so clever. I have pulled this off. I have pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. Nobody is any the wiser. Like, I pulled it off. I got away with it. But this story is not over yet, not by a long shot. Look at the end of verse 27, and this should be chilling to you. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Friend, you may think you're clever. You may actually be clever. You may think that you've covered up all your tracks. 
But I just want to say, if, that, if that's you, if that's where you are this morning, I want to say to you, you have made one very serious miscalculation, and that is that God is never, ever blind to your sin or mine. He sees all. He knows all. The book of Numbers in the Old Testament says that your sin will find you out. Literally, your sin will hunt you down. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it will haunt you and you will be exposed. If not in this life, then on that last day when you stand before your creator and you give an account of your life. So here's the last truth that I want you to see this morning. Number four, God hates sin. Let me personalize it. God hates your sin. Not the sin of people out there so worried about society's sin. God hates your sin. And God hates my sin. Why? Because it's an affront to his holiness and because it ravages and destroys his children whom he loves deeply. And because that's true, if we love him, we must learn to hate our sin as God does. We must learn to run from it, to crush it, to mercilessly cut it out of our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit. I love this quote from John Owen. He's a 17th century English theologian and church leader. Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friend, be about the business of killing your sin or it will be about the business of killing you. Now, I want to I end with some, some gospel hope for you this morning. So I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a moment. There's nothing religious about bowing your heads. It just allows us to kind of concentrate and focus and maybe hear from the Holy Spirit of God. I'm guessing that there's some of you, maybe even many of you right now, who are listening to this message, and maybe you're pretty crushed right now. Right? If, you've, if you've given yourself to sexual sin or sin of some other variety, chances are, that deep down, you probably feel pretty dirty. You probably feel a sense of worthlessness. And that will keep you in the, the cycle of sin, right? Because you feel dirty and you feel worthless, so you live a dirty and worthless life. And you keep giving yourself away to dirty and worthless things. Right? It's like this vicious cycle that we can't get out of. So I just want to encourage you. I want you to listen to me. Hey, teenager, here living in hidden sin, hidden shame. Married person, shackled by guilt. Single person, struggling with some addiction. I want you to know, wherever you're at, it can all end today. Jesus died to redeem you. He died to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west to make you a new creation in Christ, to wash you in his blood, to give you a clean heart and a new start. So when you surrender, when you actually confess, and you repent, and you give your life to him, here's what happens. He takes all of your junk, and all of your guilt, and all of your shame, and all of your sin, and he nails it to the cross. And it gives you life and freedom in exchange. That's what we call the great exchange. 
So if you feel worthless and ashamed and just ridden by guilt, I want you to know that he can restore your purity. Because he gives you your purity, which ne- his purity, which never perishes. God's grace is greater. It's greater than all of your sin. And listen, I know there are probably some of you here and you're on the brink. You're standing on the brink of disaster in your life, just like David was. When you're thinking about crossing a line sexually, who knows, maybe you've already crossed it. Maybe you're on the brink of some other sin, lying, gossiping, some ethical line that you're thinking about crossing at school or work, whatever it is. And God is saying to you this morning through his word, because he loves you, beloved, turn back. Turn back. Turn from sin. Run to me. Confess. Repent. It's not too late. It's not too late to find forgiveness. I stand ready to clean you, to wash you, to forgive you, to love you. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, listen, I know because I was there, you have a void in your life. And until God fills that void, you're going to keep trying to fill that void with junk that's going to kill you in the end. Listen, we all, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, we all have a common problem, and that problem is sin. That's the bad news. The good news is we also have a common solution, and that's Jesus Christ. So if you've never been alive spiritually, I want you to know that God invites you into that real life today. God loves you. And he came for you. Will you not stop running and turn to him? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a believer, maybe you've drifted into sin just like King David. Here's my encouragement to you. Come back today. Come back today. Maybe you're the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter. Your father awaits your return. Wherever you are today in your life, understand this. Sin kills, but Jesus heals. Turn to him. Nothing else will satisfy you. Nothing else will make you happy in this life. We're going to pray in just a minute. And then we're going to come and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In fact, ushers, if you guys would go ahead and come to the tables. But listen, as we pray in just a minute, I want you to understand this is your chance. Friend, this this is your chance right now. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is your chance. This is your time to repent and believe. To turn from your sin that will lead you to eternal disaster and to give your life to Jesus in your own words. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this is also your chance to just confess sin, to repent of whatever sin that you're tangled up in, to get your heart right with God. Let me just encourage you, friend, please please do not come to these tables until that work is done in your hearts. Let's do that now. You guys pray as I pray. God hears us. Father, Father, we are all guilty, all guilty. We are all sinners, Father. We are all David today. Father, I just ask for the one here who 
maybe has never experienced your forgiveness, God, the one who, here who's never tasted real life in Jesus, would you help them now? Would you give them the courage now to turn from their sin and to turn to you today, right now, just to cry out to you, to ask for a new heart, a new life in Jesus? And your word tells us that when we do that, you will be faithful to cleanse us and give us a new heart and a new life in you. And Father, for the Christians in the room here who maybe are, are drifting or perhaps maybe they've already drifted into really dangerous, scary waters, God, help, help them. Give them the courage right now to turn back, to realize it's never, ever too late. To realize that there's always forgiveness in you. There's always restoration found in you, but it starts with confession and repentance. We have to own it before you heal it, God. So please help each person in this room right now do that, right now. We ask it for our good. We ask it for your glory in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.